Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. Welcome back. Before we get into this Justice Update, we just wanted to apologize for the audio, which is sketchy in parts. Lots went wrong with this recording. Most of it my fault, but Janet valiantly edited it because we thought that the conversation was really interesting and you needed to hear it. So let's get started. Hey, Stephanie, I think our listeners will have forgotten who we are. I'm Janet Anderson. And I'm Stephanie from the Bear. We're back at work and there's plenty to podcast about. Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you so much to Ilaria for providing all of our episodes in August. What she did was went through the entire archive and then she pulled out some episodes that she found really interesting. And I'm so pleased that she did that, gave us a break, but also hopefully gave you something to, to listen to. We have lots of great episodes coming up. Janet especially is planning lots of interviews. We we don't want to jinx uh, anything by telling it too far in advance, but we're really excited about who is going to come on and we think that you'll like them as well. And of course, we'll just keep on top of everything that's going on generally. So that kind of brings us to this podcast because this is a what's going on podcast. We're recording this on Friday, the 27th of August in the morning. What's happening in the world really is Afghanistan at the moment. And I know that there are other places where where bad things are happening too. But we thought that we should, our kind of responsibility as a podcast is to try and look what does it mean for accountability for atrocity crimes in the future. So we're going to look a bit today about the International Criminal Court, which is investigating Afghanistan. And we'll also ask about what's been happening in Australia and their investigation into alleged war crimes groups by Australian troops. But first, um, we're going to look at what's been happening in terms of evacuations, which have been really extraordinary to be to be watching We know that many of you who listen to this podcast have been working really hard on this to help lawyers, to help judges, human rights defenders, women activists, anybody who might be targeted by the Taliban. And we're very lucky to have been joined by Sarah Kay, a human rights lawyer um, who also works in the area of national security. She's been working with other members of the Atlas Women's Network, which is a huge group of women lawyers all over the world. I happen to be part of one of the groups and seen some of the messaging that going backwards and forwards, and I know how hard members of that group are working. So, Sarah, can you summarise? What have you been doing? Everything. What we've been doing is the work that every government and every institution should have been doing but didn't. I want to be very, very clear that a very significant portion of those evacuations were coordinated by volunteers, by people like me. I am not in Kabul. I am in Belfast, Northern Ireland right now. And this is from Belfast that I've been managing to coordinate those evacuations. But Sarah, that just sounds crazy. The idea that you and other volunteers are trying to navigate a system. Is that because there is no system? There is no system. I know an article came out in the very days after the fall of Kabul that said, evacuations are being coordinated by WhatsApp and Signal. And people thought it was, you know, the next, the early days, the early hours that people were just, you know, texting one another in the rush to try to escape. No, up until very this morning, my WhatsApp and my Signal are completely full. We've been doing this um, by phone and slowly on the back of my own personal contacts, I started getting messages. I'm sorry, can you figure something out? Can you get me out? And We've never stopped. 
we've never stopped. And it's on the back of my contacts, on the back of the knowledge that I have of Afghanistan, on the back of uh, people that I know on the ground and on the back of satellite imagery that I have access to, that we've been able to guide people safely, as safely as possible to the airport, that we've managed to coordinate flights to get them into the airport, into a flight, tracking them back to their destination. This was volunteers, a large portion of them volunteers doing this on their free time. And so uh, what I'm now imagining is that basically you are looking at Google Maps to look at the Kabul airport and then telling people where to go, those kinds of things. I can't believe that this is organized this way and that this is apparently what's needed and that there's not some bigger plan. Well, for some people, it was through Google Maps. Thankfully, we managed to do a little more than that. Um, because I work in national security, I have access to a lot of information, which allowed us, um, including my colleague, Antu, um, who was based in the U.S., to um, have access to maps that some of the other volunteers that I know, some of them being on the ground, whose identities I cannot reveal for security reasons. Uh, we mapped Taliban checkpoints, and we were working in shifts to update the maps of Taliban checkpoints in real times because they moved. We also had maps from satellite imagery of around the airport to map up the gates as they were open and closed that we worked and we were guiding people through satellite imagery because some of them have some of us have access to that. It's it's mostly the fact that we are used to navigating some of those um, counterterrorism circles that we've been able to do that, you know, and people on the ground, including. Yeah, I can't really say who they are because they are at risk and even back home. But we've created a, a significant network and those who are doing this via Google Maps eventually came to me at the very last minute because I was not just doing evacuations. I was also doing exfiltrations, um, which means that people who cannot safely go to the airport, we had to arrange a way and a route and, and some convoys to get them. We had no access to any form of logistics because there were no institution on the ground and governments had zero interest in evacuating anyone that was not their own nationals. Sarah, I know that you need to get back to this and I know that you're working absolutely round the clock. So just a final question is the evacuations by the airport have stopped. What happens over the next few weeks, few days? Is it it's going to be very difficult, but what would you like to, to see happen? Well, actually, today it's sort of OK. Um, this is the first time that I've slept in two weeks because the airport shut down yesterday after the ISIS bombs and they welded the gates shut. So, you know, when they say we will keep going the evacuations, I just saw that today in the news. That's absolutely not true. The gates are welded shut. The only evacuations that would take place is the troops themselves that have to leave before the 31st of August. What's going to happen is now we need to switch our gates to land evacuations. I really hit the brakes on this uh, a few days ago when it became, it started to become an alternative, knowing that the evacuation had to stop. We knew we were working through a very short window. We knew there was only so long that the Taliban would stop, you know, shooting people, but then eventually turning them around um, because it's so unsafe. It's so unsafe without a humanitarian corridor. It, it requires so much logistics in terms of finding cars, finding gas. Uh, most of those people are women with children, and and you can probably imagine what it's like to travel with five children that don't have water, don't have food, are scared. I had to do an evacuation for somebody whose child had been bitten up by the Taliban and, and needed immediate medical care. So, and then trying to find, you know, where to send them, Iran, Pakistan, those are not exactly the kind of countries I imagine to be safe, but we, we have no choice. 
so we're going to shift our gaze to that and going to shift our gaze to uh, gathering intelligence on the rest of Afghanistan, not just Kabul, which is going to be a massive undertaking. And again, we've been, Atlas has pushed it out and the statement yesterday to say, you know, we have no choice. You need to give us a corridor. You need to give us one now. You should have given us a corridor the day Kabul fell because there's only so much Atlas can do, honestly. And there's nothing that we've done that wasn't short of extraordinary. I think I was talking to one of them yesterday. I said, you know, whenever the dust settles, whenever that's going to be, I don't think anybody would ever believe that we did what we did. And this is going to be me and my team at Digital Dunkirk, because that's how we called ourselves. I don't think anybody would believe what we've done. But in the absence of governments, in the absence of the UN, in the absence of the RCRC, that's what you have to do. Somebody had to step up and all of those women did. And I'm extremely proud to be one of them. Thank you so much for all your work. And I know that me and Janet and a lot of our listeners also have people that they know that are human rights defenders in Afghanistan. And we are all thinking about what we could do. So very practically, what could we do to help the like where what are the organizations to donate to? Uh, how could we support this effort? How could our listeners support uh, the things that you're doing? Well, it's really hard because there's a lot of private contractors that have tried to get in. And, and that's another story that one day we will have to, to discuss is the profit margin of some of those private contractors that was selling seats on the plane for $3.5 million. Yeah, that's that's another story because my colleagues um, that were on the ground refused to take any donations. They said this is not this is not a regular work operation. This is humanitarian um, assistance. We, if if some of your listeners have any political pull or influx, even if they don't, we need a humanitarian corridor and we need it now. France, the UK and the US are permanent members of the Security Council. They can trigger the Chapter 7 peacekeeping operations. We need it now. We need it two weeks ago. We need it now. We can't wait. Those people need to come out. But on the other side of this, once we ever find out how to take them out, those people need to be safe. Those people need to be received in European countries, in the U.S., in Canada. They need to know that there is refuge on the other side of this. They need to know they're not going to be held in immigration detention. They need to know they're not going to end up in a displaced person's camp somewhere in Pakistan. They need to know there is an end uh, to, at the end of this tunnel. And then to the end, they need to know there is an exit route. So we need a strong commitment to the protection of humanitarian defenders and and human rights defenders, because those were not prioritized on the evacuation list. It was nationals before, and then it was translators and fixers, whose role, of course, was absolutely crucial in the last 20 years. But human rights defenders were never on the priority list. This is where we have to do the land evacuations for now. We have a duty towards them. We have a responsibility towards them. It's not just moral, it's also legal. And in terms of donation, I know No One Left Behind has been pulling so much work so much work to do to put so many on the U.S. evacuation list, people who should have been on the U.K. list, on the French list, on the Dutch list. They took them on the U.S. list. They deserve to be acknowledged. I don't know if they're going to be able to help us in the land evacuations, but if they are, please consider supporting no one left behind. Dunkirk doesn't take donations, as I said, because we're doing this because we know we have to. I will have more information once we coordinate, but mostly what we need is to, if we have to shame governments into saying, this is why we let us do, you were not there. I have had to evacuate people via WhatsApp. And that's the reality of it. 
Sarah, again, thank you so much for spending time with us. You've laid out so many of the important issues that will inform the rest of the podcast. If you have any links, let us know and we'll put them onto our website for the podcast. We'll say goodbye to you now and let you go back to sleep or back to your WhatsApp. Thank you so much. I appreciate this a lot. Thank you. So now picking up on so many of those issues that Sarah laid out of um, what happens next, uh, we're going to get into the accountability issues. So let us introduce Julie Fraser. Hi, Julie. Hello. Very nice to be here, Janet. Stephanie, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, hi. Julie is Assistant Professor in Utrecht with the Netherlands Institute of Human Rights, the SIM, and the Montaigne Centre. She's a lawyer and will be asking her about the ICC and Islamic law, something she's written about and which seems to be relevant now in Afghanistan, obviously. But first, we want to pick up this point about what the UN should be doing, about what can be done in terms of uh, helping human rights defenders. First point is in Geneva, the Human Rights Council, just the week that we are recording, had a special session. And the head of the United Nations uh, Human Rights Commission, uh, Michelle Bachelet, actually called on the council to, quote, to take bold and deliberate action by establishing an established mechanism, unquote, to closely monitor the evolving human rights situation in, in Afghanistan and to particularly focus on the Taliban's implementation of its promises and with a focus on prevention of further abuses. But the council, Human Rights Council, the states said no. Um, so, Julie, the human rights special rapporteurs, all of the experts were behind this. They called it a, quote, test case for the integrity of the UN and said this is the only way you could get meaningful application of human rights and humanitarian norms. Why was it that something that's called a human rights council couldn't agree to this, do you think? It's a really good question, Janet. Uh, and it reflects, of course, the political nature of that body. The Human Rights Council is made up of states, member states to the UN. It's um, contrasted to other different human rights bodies of the UN that are made up of independent experts. This body is overtly political. Um, and unfortunately, that means that we're here dealing with international relations, different state interests, um, and states, of course, pursuing their own self-interests over certainly the interest we've seen here about people in Afghanistan and, as Sarah mentioned, certainly human rights defenders uh, and workers there. In terms of it being a test case for the UN, yeah, this makes me this makes me concerned because, of course, it is a test case and, of course, we're going to fail it. As Sarah mentioned, we already have begun to do so. Um, I stand behind what Michelle Bachelet has said um, in terms of looking out particularly for women and girls' rights. Uh, and I do think that there needs to be a special body set up. However, history has shown that this also takes time. We have eventually seen mechanisms for Syria and for crimes of the Islamic State in Iraq and now in Myanmar. But all of these things took time. Let's just hear from Shrazad Akbar from the Independent Afghan Human Rights Council. She is also calling on the UN Human Rights Council. Madam President. The draft resolution tabled today is a travesty. We have documented that the Taliban advances came with summary executions, disappearances, restrictions on women, media, and cultural life. This is not ancient history. This is earlier this month, and this is today. Women in Afghanistan are being turned down from their offices by the Taliban, 
Universities have been asked to discuss gender segregation possibilities. Women are required to be accompanied by male members of their family in public. Media are not broadcasting music. Journalists and activists are in hiding or in flee. Former members of the Afghan National Security Forces are scared of the worst, the Samari executions. House-to-house -house searches and information gathering has led to widespread fear. People accused of theft or other crimes are being punished in ways that undermine their human dignity without due process. Additionally, as this council knows, for the past 20 years and even before, Afghanistan has been the site of many war crimes. Hospitals and newborn babies have been attacked, school children blown up, media have been directly targeted, innocent civilians have been killed and airstrikes are illegally detained and tortured in nitrates. The response of this council to these abuses as the foremost international human rights body cannot be business as usual. Afghan activists on the ground, my colleagues on the ground, who face direct threats to their lives and the lives of their families, demand better. Yeah, that was a really uh, heartfelt plea from Shahrazad um, speaking by Zoom directly into that meeting in Geneva. I mean, just from what Sarah was saying, from what Shahrazad is saying, this really feels to me, Julie, like women particularly must feel abandoned. I think particularly now, yes, women in Afghanistan, but I think... More broadly, you can also say that women's rights around the world are being threatened and that there is a backlash also more broadly. So this is certainly not something that women are confronted with for the first time. I think we are used to being let down by the international community when it comes to promoting women's rights. And here I find it a really tricky situation because I, I also support the withdrawal because obviously we've seen in 20 years that the US occupation is also not a solution. So it's really hard to see where the path actually takes us forward on this point. Obviously, Sarah's mentioned refugees, and it's really important to protect people and to get them out of Afghanistan. But I also don't support Western troops remaining in Afghanistan. Well, let's pick up another bit of uh, what we're calling the accountability puzzle, maybe a bit of a jigsaw of, of different elements that we can, um, can puzzle together. There are ongoing investigations into war crimes in Afghanistan heading way back. We're going to come to the ICC in a moment. But let's start with uh, your native land, Julie, with Australia. Let me just ask uh, Stephanie to do her typical Staphopedia. In the winter of last year, there was a report that came out uh, from the uh, Australian military called the Barrington Report after the, I think, the former general who led it, which basically said that there was credible information to believe that Australian special forces did commit war crimes during the Afghanistan conflict. And this was then especially that they had attacked unarmed people, made it look like uh, they were armed, so to kind of justify the attacks, and that they were actually part of some very weird uh, initiation ritual where people would, uh, the soldiers would need to have something called bloodings, where they would kill uh, people to kind of prove that they're real men or real like special forces or something like that. When that came out, there was a lot of uh, attention paid to it. And then it was made, uh, this was the report from the military itself. So it now has to move to the kind of legal uh, realm in Australia. And they are setting up a special inquiry. They have a prosecutor uh, for it. And I think they are now hiring people to investigate it. 
Yeah, I caught up with uh, Fiona Nelson, Senior Legal Advisor for the Australian Centre for International Justice, and she told us uh, what's just been happening in the most recent period. Australia published its report into those allegations in November of last year. And the government set up an office of the special investigator in order to look into those allegations and potentially make referrals for prosecution. The latest updates that we have gotten from that office of the special investigator is that they are hiring investigators. In May of this year, we heard that they had hired an initial cohort of 24 investigators and analysts and those had been drawn from state and federal police forces. And they are based in Sydney, um, which is in lockdown at the moment. And we also heard that the number of investigators should rise to about 75. That was the plan. We also asked Fiona, what are the difficulties now? Because it changes over time and with the current constraints in Australia. Yes, well, obviously it is a setback. It means that investigators won't be able to travel to Afghanistan to gather evidence in the foreseeable future. And of course, there's currently no Australian embassy in Afghanistan to assist. The Office of the Special Investigator this week did make a comment that, you know, any future work in Afghanistan would require an assessment of the risks to investigators and to witnesses. The other thing, of course, is that investigators might normally have relied on the Afghan government to arrange legal cooperation to insist in their inquiries and facilitate contact, get in touch with police and maybe witnesses. Obviously, that won't be possible now. So we don't know what that kind of legal assistance might look like in the future. But we also know that lack of access to Afghanistan does not mean that investigators have to stop their work entirely, but rather find some other avenues. So International investigations, as you know, are always complicated. Obviously, it would be better if they had access, but they are, as I say, going to have to focus on other avenues for now and focus on the kind of evidence that is available. So there are insider witnesses from the special forces. There are whistleblowers. There's evidence that's already been gathered. Also, in time, obviously, at the moment, the, the priority for Afghans, the survivors and um, human rights defenders and civil society is their own safety. But in time, it might be that some witnesses are out of the country. And once this urgent situation has passed, they may want again to cooperate with Australian investigations. And the Public Interest Advocacy Centre here in Australia has just published an excellent guide to locating and interviewing witnesses in remote human rights investigations. So that report has a forward by Michael Kirby, who, among other things, was the chairman of the UN Commission of Inquiry on North Korea. So he emphasizes that having restricted access to the territory and witnesses does not prevent investigation from gathering important information. And that report also describes how when investigators are blocked from visiting the scene of alleged crimes, the use of satellite imagery and maps can help to piece together relevant information on the physical environment, which is often so important. So, yes, there is some evidence already gathered. The investigators for the Burton report did travel to Kabul sometime in 2019. And in July of this year, um, three Afghan witnesses gave evidence to the federal court in Sydney in separate defamation proceedings taken by one special forces soldier who'd been accused of war crimes. So it may be that investigators can look 
to the evidence in those proceedings. So we'll make sure that there's a link to that report uh, on our website in case you're interested in in knowing more. But Julie, I'm wondering what you think of this. Can realistically these investigations continue in these circumstances? I'm, I can't imagine that the Taliban's going to cooperate with other states. I mean, you know, Australia, will they have an embassy? I mean, how, how on earth is this this going going to work? What, what, what's your imagination of, of what the future will be? And I know it's only an imagination because we just don't know. Yeah, um, so we're sort of speculating here as to the future. But I, I do feel a little bit secure in making some of these suggestions as to what happens going forward. Because we do have the Brereton report, which was done over four years, really looking into um, these allegations of atrocious uh, crimes by between 20 to 25 Australian soldiers. Uh, So there is already material there. And it's now, as you said, being investigated for criminal purposes or really gathering evidence. And there are ways that we can do that, of course, using audiovisual technology that the soldiers themselves had. So a lot of them were wearing cameras um, and we can use that data that we already have. There's also, of course, satellite images and technology is our friend here in that sense. And already before uh, the, the Taliban recent takeover, it was difficult to access some of the victims and the witnesses in Afghanistan in any case. Um, it was dangerous, it was difficult to access, etc. So it's not necessarily a new problem now that the Taliban have taken over the entire country. And in Australia, we've got good legislation to prosecute these sorts of crimes. We've got a good justice system. We've got some really great lawyers. So I think this certainly can go ahead. But that also leads us a bit into what the ICC can still do uh, with Afghanistan. Of course, uh, Afghanistan joined the ICC in 2003, and in 2007 it was revealed that the Office of the Prosecutor had started a preliminary investigation. They're looking at crimes from 2003 onwards. This is on all sides. It includes government forces, Taliban, but also U.S. forces and uh, torture at uh, CIA black sites. They asked a judge for a full investigation in 2017, but after an incredibly long two years, the judges said no, but on appeal, uh, they were allowed to open an investigation, uh, which was in March 2020, so mid-pandemic, just before the pandemic basically got out of hand and things ground to a halt. And immediately the Afghan government went to the Office of the Prosecutor to have it delayed the investigation for a year. But we don't know what happened with that yet. There's no decision on that. So we did a whole podcast on this, on how incredibly unclear this process is for victims and survivors who've become very engaged with the process uh, here in The Hague, but now have no idea what is going on. Uh, Stefan has mentioned the deferral request, but I'm wondering, Julie, how on earth does this now play out? Um Is that Afghan government deferral still valid? They don't exist anymore as a government. There's a Taliban government. Nobody recognises it. Does the ICC just kind of sit still like a block and wait and see what what goes on? What, What happens? Yeah, also unknowns here at this point in time. This is also why I think it's really important that prosecutions in Australia do go ahead. And I think that this is a a really great opportunity for Australia also to prove its complementarity. Australia is currently one of the co-focal points for the Assembly of States parties on complementarity. 
And I think here they have the chance really to push ahead and show what positive complementarity can actually be. They need, I think, to improve that. There are some things happening. You you mentioned before about how they're hiring staff and whatever else for the special investigation. But there needs to be a lot more transparency around what they're doing in Australia and foster developments that also include and provide some sort of redress for victims in Afghanistan, which will, of course, be very difficult because of now the situation with the Taliban. I can't see the Taliban cooperating um, either with Australia's independent investigations into their own troops or with the ICC's investigation into yeah, other crimes or those potentially committed by the Taliban. So I think we're going to have a difficult situation here where you're not going to see cooperation and perhaps we're even going to see over non-cooperation and interference. Here, we should also mention the statement of the new ICC prosecutor, Karim Khan, on Afghanistan, who basically warned all sides that they have this investigation, they're looking into it. And he ended by quoting the Quran to say, whoever kills a person, it shall be as if they killed all mankind. And whoever so give life to one, it shall be as if they have given life to all mankind. And this reference in the, to the Quran in an ICC statement, is that the first time you've seen it from the OTP? It is, and I, I really welcome this statement. It's also obviously from the prosecutor himself, but I welcome the ICC, particularly the judges and other areas of the court, also taking up this sort of uh, references to religious sources that hold such legitimacy and, and are so powerful for so many of the court's constituents. Yes, I was surprised. You know, I mean, Karim Khan, he is a, a Muslim uh, from Pakistan, but then also, uh, you know, the former prosecutor uh, was also a Muslim from Gambia, and she didn't do the kind of referring to the Quran, which, which kind of when he did it, I was like, oh, that's actually quite logical to do. I wonder why, why she didn't, but that's maybe a different podcast. I think it is really interesting, um, especially he's just new to the job, of course. He's really only sort of taken over. So the whole world is watching to see what he does with this mandate. So I think it's very interesting that this is one of his first statements. Um, and to start out in this way, I think is, is really interesting. I'm, of course, uh, very curious because I have, along with other scholars, urged the court to uh, use Islamic law where it's relevant in its cases. And is, uh, Islam is certainly very relevant to Afghanistan, which is an Islamic republic. You've actually said that you think it's kind of an underutilized resource. So maybe this statement fits into that. But I think most people's impression of Islamic law, uh, Sharia, is if they know a lot about it, then they know there are many different types. But most people's impression isn't that it kind of fits the kind of norms and values of international human rights law, international humanitarian law. But tell me if I'm wrong. So you're correct in the sense that certainly in the West, that the public perception of Islam is definitely that it is a monolithic, ancient body of law that's very static um, and incredibly uh, also barbaric. There's a very negative perception of Islam in that sense. And that's led in Europe to things like the burqa ban that we've seen in many different European states and also in the US where under Trump they implemented the Muslim ban. I think these are also publicly popular because of this very negative perception um, of Islam and also, of course, Islamophobia. You're very right, Janet, in saying that there is huge plurality within Islam. 
There are, of course, different schools of thought, not just the Shia and the Sunni, but within both of those, there are then many different other schools of thought. And it's not like in Christianity, say, where we have the Pope who's sort of this figurehead. There is huge diversity across the Muslim world. So we also see what happens perhaps in Indonesia is going to be different to what happens in Mali, which is different again to what happens in Syria. So while there are some central tenets that are fixed, for example, prayer, um, pilgrimage, these sorts of things are common to the Muslim world. Other practices um, can be very different around the world. And this is really important to dispel those ideas of Islam being fixed and unchanging. Well, yes, I'm sure that that's a subject that we're definitely going to come back to during Kareem Khan's tenure. Thanks very much, Julie Fraser, for filling us in there on all of that explanation and understanding of uh, how people see Islamic law. And there are quite a lot of uh, Muslim-majority countries that are members of the ICC, so it will be relevant to them. It could maybe also help uh, get support for the court in those countries. And uh, just to circle back to where we started, um, talking about the situation of people on the ground in Afghanistan, um, we know that a lot of Afghanistan organizations did a lot of the heavy lifting when it came to informing people about the ICC's work and engaging with victims on the ground um, for these potential cases. And Steph, we've both seen some kind of filing, haven't we, to do with um, victims arguing that the ICC has an obligation to human rights defenders, to those that it's cooperated with. Have we heard anything out of the court about that filing? No, we've seen nothing out of the court yet. I've called both the spokespersons of the court and of the Office of the Prosecutor, but they both um, weren't able to come back to me or I got those kind of answers as uh, we're not in the position to answer now. So maybe there are things behind the scenes, but uh, nothing that we can see up front. Well, I'm sure we'll circle back to Afghanistan again, another podcast in the future. But let's just leave you with uh, Fiona Nelson. And she says that really whatever is happening in Afghanistan, everywhere in the world, she thinks that there's a real obligation to investigate war crimes. And she's sure that it will be done. I think it's crucial that the developments of the last weeks are not used as an excuse to slow or halt investigations. Afghan witnesses who've given their testimony to the OTP or to journalists or to domestic investigations here in Australia, they've already taken great risks. And I think the least we can do now is to ensure that their evidence continues to feed into genuine, well-resourced investigations. So thanks to Fiona for that Australian context. And Sarah, thanks for joining us at the start. And Julie, for helping us with some commentary on um, Islamic law and how it could be applied in the ICC. So uh, I'll see you, I hope, next week, Stephanie. Yes, it's going to be universal jurisdiction next. Yeah, we've actually recorded one in advance. So this time we can trail it. It's uh, old crimes, long shadows. It's about the Iran case that's going on in Sweden and really fascinating podcast coming up. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.